Welcome to Manage Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. My name is Allison Insero, Senior Editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. By 2060, the number of Americans over the age of 65 will be one in four, and the number of those aged 85 plus, the oldest old, will triple, according to the Census Bureau. That population will live longer with chronic, complex diseases, as well as neurological disorders such as Parkinson and Alzheimer. The demand for home health care aides and nursing assistants will explode, but we don't have enough of them now. Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Stephen Campbell, the data and policy analyst at PHI, a New York-based nonprofit organization that works to improve long-term services and care for the elderly and those with disabilities, by focusing on the job quality of those providing that hands-on care, home health care aides and nursing assistants, by focusing on training, retention, wages, and advancement. Stephen, thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Great. Thanks for having me. PHI recently released a report about the wages of home care workers and nursing assistants. Do you want to talk about that report, but first say anything else that the audience should know about PHI? Yeah, sure. So I can start by introducing you to PHI. Uh, We're a nationwide nonprofit focused on improving the quality of long-term services and supports by improving the quality of direct care jobs. We achieve that vision in a bifurcated manner. So part of our organization works directly with providers and payers on the ground and My side of the organization does policy research uh, to sort of highlight uh, policies and practices in the field that can be used to improve the quality of these jobs. So these reports are are signature annual reports that we release every year uh, to sort of take a snapshot of what's happening in this field. And what we're seeing in in some ways are are not surprising, but uh, in others are, are, you know, really shocking. The, The confluence of factors are driving up demand for this work and at the same time, turnover is high and job quality is poor. So as a result, in the next decade from 2016 to 2026, uh, we're expected to need to fill 4.2 million job openings in home care and thousands more in nursing homes. Really, we have immense challenges uh, coming ahead and we're already experiencing them as the population of older adults is just beginning to grow. But this is not a field that pays a lot from what you have reported some of the home health care aides, or maybe even most of them, don't even have health insurance themselves. Their average earnings are about what, $11 an hour? Yes, that's right, around $11.50. Is it a situation where home health care agencies might be reimbursed by the government, but then the people who work in this field are actually relying on government assistance of some sort? Yes, absolutely. So, uh, I mean, part of the reason why wages are so low, even in such a competitive labor market, is that in many ways, employers are uh, are not able to invest in, in wages because they're so reliant on public programs. Uh, public programs account for somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of total home care industry revenue. At, at this time, states are really struggling to invest in the workforce through reimbursement rates because they're seeing this influx of Medicaid enrollees as the population continues to age and these people need services. But there are also societal reasons uh, for the poor compensation of this workforce. 
namely nine in 10 of these workers are women and the caregiving responsibilities of women are for patriarchal reasons are often expected to be performed uh, for free. So this work generally is just undervalued in, in the public eye. And you're right, as a result of this poor compensation, even though public funds are supporting uh, these workers' wages and compensation, many of these workers, about half of them, are also relying on public assistance themselves. Um, so that sort doesn't really make economic sense. And it can also lead to a poorly optimized workforce where workers are limiting their hours or not accepting pay raises because they're fearful that doing so will cause them to fall off of a financial cliff where they'll lose their health insurance through Medicaid programs or their food and nutrition assistance that they use to support their families. Is the situation the same for workers who work in nursing homes or other facilities? The situation is different uh, in part because nursing assistants are paid a bit more, but their on-the-job responsibilities are also more challenging in some ways. Uh, rather than assisting a single individual uh, in their shifts, they're assisting uh, somewhere around 12 residents at once on average. And uh, in some cases, it can be even many more. Uh, nursing homes generally are short-staffed, which means workers uh, are performing uh, challenging lifts and transfers as individual people instead of using a partner, which is really what they're meant to do. So injury rates are really high. Uh, this, this work can be very dangerous. And often because uh, at the supervisor level, they're also short-staffed. Uh, they're not really getting the support that they need uh, in that setting as well. So the other factors that affect job quality for nursing assistants is, uh, are that states have really intentionally invested heavily in home care services to make these services available to anyone uh, who wants to stay at home and can stay at home. So as a result, nursing homes have taken on this new role of only assisting uh, residents who have a really high level of need or who have Alzheimer's or other dementias. In some cases, nursing assistants are assisting residents with really severe mental health issues or substance abuse issues. And they're really not prepared for these kinds of responsibilities, especially in the context of a workforce shortage. What kind of training do home health care workers or aides in a facility usually receive before they are working with such chronic, complex, you know, high need patients? In nursing homes, uh, training standards have been largely unchanged since the late 1980s under over 87, which would set the current standards. Uh, but basically they receive 75 hours of training, uh, including some clinical hours and experiential hours. But the quality of this training, although it's standardized at the federal level and there are differing levels of state requirements as well as it's sort of all over the map. We know from rigorous evaluations at PHI and elsewhere that learners are most successful when instructors use methods that are engaging and include diverse activities, and also when training is structured in a competency-based way so that we're assessing learners on their knowledge, skills, and attitudes. And these elements are often lacking in training, so workers are entering these really complex roles with challenging responsibilities, uh, feeling unprepared or unconfident in their skills. There's a trend in some states, I don't know exactly how many states, but a movement to gradually over the next couple of years raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. I think your report said that nursing homes, for example, the wages are slightly higher 
at, I think, just under $14 an hour. Will moving to $15 an hour help this, or are we still talking about a workforce that might decide they'd rather work, you know, at a fast food chain? So, I mean, certainly raising the minimum wage or investing in compensation in any sense is going to improve the economic well-being of workers. I mean, that's just uh, undeniably true. But the challenge, as you've noted, is that that causes wage suppression at the bottom end of the wage scale. The challenge is, is that when the minimum wage increases, it, it means that home care workers and nursing assistants might be paid at the same level as fast food workers or, or retail salespeople, uh, which means that they lose some competitiveness. And we know that, uh, according to reports from the field, that this is driving up turnover in those areas. And it's, it's been a real challenge. States are having to respond by investing more heavily in this workforce. And also within organizations, that means that uh, home care workers and nursing assistants are closer in wages to their supervisors. Often, uh, states are not investing in the full wage scale uh, up from frontline workers up to administrative staff. So that's been a challenge for employers as well, that it can sometimes cause turnover at all levels of the organization. There was a bill, I think, introduced in Congress this month in, by the Democrats called the Direct Care Opportunity Act uh, in both the House and the Senate. And it would provide grants to organizations and states that want to try pilot programs. Will that be helpful if it's passed? I think that it will. And the reason is, is that the Opportunity Act focuses on job quality holistically. Compensation is absolutely important. And it's, it's often a factor in, in the ways that workers are making decisions around their employment. But in terms of a holistic picture of job quality in, in home care and in nursing homes, there are other areas we can focus on as well. Often workers are not well supported in the field by supervisors for a number of reasons. Uh, they also rarely see opportunities to learn and advance and grow in the field. Some of these workers do want to become nurses, but many do not. Uh, so what the Opportunity Act will do is, is help states innovate and develop new roles for these workers so that they can achieve uh, a higher degree of self-actualization and really put the skills that they own really uh, to, to good use in the field. And we'll all benefit from when you have workers who have direct hands-on care responsibilities and they're poorly paid, living in poverty, you know, perhaps don't have health care themselves, what are the care implications, if any, for the people on the receiving end of that care? Well, first and foremost, the poor job quality that these workers experience drive turnover ever higher, especially in the context of a good economy and a tight labor market. We don't have great turnover numbers, but according to Home Care Pulse, uh, which focus specifically on uh, private duty home care agencies that do not ex uh, accept public funds, uh, they found that turnover in 2018 for the home care workforce was 82%. Uh, in today's economy, hires are falling far below job openings, and really there's sort of a shortage of workers across sectors, but especially for low-wage industries. Uh, so I think the first impact is that consumers aren't able to get consistent care. The relationships that they have with their workers are really at the heart of quality long-term services and supports. When workers don't receive good training, when they don't receive a wage that they can live on, uh, they're more likely to leave the field and leave that consumer either to 
recruit a new worker and start the relationship building process all over again, or go without. And in the latter case, which is becoming increasingly common, that means that they have to either rely more on their family members, which means their family members either have to reduce their work hours or leave the labor force altogether. Uh, but the burden on, on unpaid caregivers can also be so great that it causes the family to make the difficult decision of moving into a, a nursing home or a residential care setting, perhaps against the wishes of the consumer. And that comes at a cost to the system as well. Home care services are much more affordable than residential care services. Uh, so there are sort of these rippling effects across uh, the economy and the home care system, uh, the healthcare system at large, uh, that, uh, that are caused by the poor job quality in this field. So what will happen over the next couple of decades? You know, by the time you and I are 80, 90 years old and need care, what's the outlook? It doesn't seem to be good unless something is done. That's right. Unless we act now, we can only expect things to get worse. Like I said, in the next decade, we can expect 4.2 million job openings in the home care industry alone. Across all of the direct care workforce, we expect 7.8 million job openings by 2026. If we can't fill those job openings, we're going to see more and more consumers going without care, consumers receiving inadequate care. Uh, and that's, again, going to have rippling effects across the healthcare system. That's going to cause higher risk for falls and hospitalizations and ER usage, uh, really will have a less efficient system uh, that's producing poorer outcomes, all because we're generally uh, undervaluing this work and not making the needed investments in, this, in these workers that we need to make. You mentioned that the home health care aides are typically women. They are also typically immigrants, not native-born to the United States, and we've seen over the past two years a shift in US policy towards immigration. What effect do you think that sort of clampdown will have? Well, basic economics suggests that when you have a workforce shortage, there are two things you can do. Um, you can either uh, increase wages, which we know is really challenging, or increase immigration. At, at the current moment, we're sort of falling short on both sides. The changes in immigration policy in some ways have really direct effects on this workforce. For example, this administration has allowed temporary protected status for Haitian people to expire. In areas like Massachusetts, where some nursing homes are exclusively employing Haitian workers, that's going to, be a, that's going to cause a crisis. I mean, that's, that's, they already can't find enough workers, and now they're facing widespread vacancies like they haven't seen before. In other ways, though, the effects of the harsh rhetoric around immigration are driving immigrants, especially along the border, into the shadows to return into their homes uh, and to leave their caregiving jobs. So not only does it have harrowing effects, harrowing effects on these workers who you know, we owe everything to, uh, but it's also having uh, really negative impacts on the consumers whom they work with. Uh, so in, in both cases, I think that uh, we should be thinking creatively about immigration policy and how immigrants can have a role in the system. Also to note, as the population of older adults continues to grow, many of them will also be immigrants and might also face language barriers and have preferences in terms of uh, their culture and, and the food that they eat. And matching immigrant workers with, with older adults who are also immigrants can be really an effective way to provide person-centered care. So that's also a key consideration. When you mentioned 
immigrants along the border leaving their current jobs. Um, and you're, so there you're talking about the undocumented. Are you talking about people who might be in largely private pay arrangements with individual families since you know, I know that that's very hard to track, but I think your organization has some estimates on that, meaning people who are hiring aides without going through an agency or, or something like that. Well, in general, tracking undocumented workers is extremely difficult because while some of them might respond to uh, the U.S. Census Bureau and their data might be reflected in the public data sets that we use in our analyses, uh, they might rightly feel uh, some fear about reporting uh, their personal information to the government. So in all honesty, we don't have a great sense of, of where these workers are working, but I think that you are right that many of them are working sort of under the table or off the books in these private pay arrangements, uh, and that leaves them vulnerable to, to labor market abuses, and, uh, receiving wages that are below the minimum wage, et cetera. Uh, but there are some organizations that are working on their behalf to sort of remedy that, uh, for, as one example, uh, Encuentro, an organization in New Mexico, is working to provide a home health aid training to, to New Mexican uh, immigrants and uh, assisting them in placement into households and helping them negotiate their terms of employment. Uh, so these kinds of immigration, immigrant-specific supports can be really helpful in, in uh, both meeting the needs of, of these new immigrants and also the needs of the families who are hiring them. What else do people need to know about this issue, you know, as it pertains to healthcare? Well, I think in general, it's, it's uh, one of the challenges we see in this field is that I think that all stakeholders, uh, or at least most of them, understand, understand the, the scope and scale of the challenges we face. But who's responsible for what is often unclear. Uh, providers are often feeling squeezed financially by the rates that they receive either from the state or managed care organizations. Managed care organizations sort of make the same argument. And states are suggesting that you know, really maybe providers or payers have more of a responsibility. So I think especially in managed care, clearly delineating how responsibilities are shared in workforce development is a great first step to sort of uh, generating commitment at every level from frontline supervisors all, all the way up through the state to address these challenges. And several states, including Arizona, Tennessee, and Pennsylvania, have really added uh, robust and, and interesting and innovative uh, new language to their contracting standards to ensure that managed care organizations, providers in the state are all sharing responsibility in addressing these challenges. What do you mean by that? Do you have an example of that kind of language? Yeah, so one example uh, comes from Arizona, where the state uh, just required their managed long-term care plans to first hire a workforce development administrator and then to submit to the state a workforce development plan. But they also recognized that it wouldn't make sense from the provider perspective to have different payers all with different workforce development priorities. So they're, they've convened an advisory group with all of the health plans, the state and provider associations to work in a concerted way uh, to address workforce challenges. Um, they're considering targeted sort of capacity building investments, new data collection systems, all to make sure that uh, providers have the tools at their disposal uh, to address uh, the really uh, intense workforce shortages that they're experiencing in the state. Hmm. 
That's really interesting. I hadn't heard about that one before. Is that something that PHI is involved in as a technical uh, advisor? Yes, yeah, we, we join their advisory group calls and um, assist them however we can. That's great. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it was my pleasure. To learn more about this issue, visit AJMC.com or see the show notes. To get in touch with us, email info at AJMC.com or follow us on Twitter at AJMC underscore journal. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.